from the Empire of Lies with a show that brings you the truth, free speech, and open debate. On a Come My Monday, this is the backstory. Everyone, how are you doing today? Rod, Carmine, how's it going? Let's go Carmine first. Bro, I dude, last week, I was, I had worked all day. I just fell asleep. I was out like a light. I'm so sorry. No, no. So sorry. I, I mean, I'm not chastising you. Far be it for me, since you're Italian and dangerous. But uh, far be it for me to chastise <laughs> you. I mean, literally, we miss you, Carmine. So how have you been? How have you been? Uh, you know, man, good. Working hard, bro, you know. Trying to save the world one day at a time. Or at least You're the country. The election. We're about two weeks from the big midterms. And do you still think yeah. that Democrats are facing disaster? I think it's cute how they're pretending they're not. I think it's actually, yeah. you hear Nancy Pelosi say, you, should, you hear Nancy Pelosi on TV, well, I think we're going to keep the House. You know she doesn't think that. You know she doesn't well, think that. You know, Silly. Nancy Pelosi, I, I'm going to say at her age, it will be the last time we see Nancy Pelosi with a gavel. Does that make sense? Yeah. But it won't be the Absolutely. last time we see her husband hammered. No, that's true. He'll have, a, he'll have his own gavel. Because he likes to wine. That's, that's what I'm saying. He's the only guy who had his glove compartment replaced with a wine rack in his car. Because <laughs> he wants it handy. He can just lean oh, over. Listen, that's a very drunk marriage, just all the way around. Very drunk marriage. Now, we'll talk about it with in the first hour. We've got, from London, Ian Schilling. Are you following at all what the hell's going on in London? Bro, if you think our, our I, political I system... I followed as much yeah, as I can, but I, I, I have no idea what the heck they're doing. I mean, right. none of it makes a little sense. they got a, a new prime minister every Thursday. It, it seems that... They've had three prime ministers in two months. So that's a pretty good record. And it makes our system in America look pretty stable and solid, doesn't it? Competent. Makes it look competent. Yes. You know, it's like, as much as I don't like Joe Biden, man, it would have been worse to have Joe Biden than Kamala Harris than Nancy Pelosi in the span of a couple weeks. That would have been, you know. And horrible. we'll talk about this, but Bojo made an appearance. Bojo was threatening to pull a Freddy Krueger. Rising from the dead, Bojo was trying to be prime minister for a little bit of the weekend. Then yesterday, he said he realized people really don't like him in England, even in his own party. So he, he dropped that. But for a second, Bojo was coming back. If we had that system of government, the United States Trump would have been president for 15 minutes. Good, good point. And it's kind of interesting. I, I look at it and I go, well, man, I mean, at least in America, they give us the illusion of choice. They don't even give the people in England an illusion. You have no say. And and with Liz Trust gone, the, all the people who didn't vote for her, which was everybody, she was not voted in by the public. She was voted in by the party. And you're right. If it was left up to Republicans in 2016, Trump would have lasted 15 minutes. But we got a lot to talk about. And in the second hour, we have our great friend, Andrew Arthur, former immigration judge, 
Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. Have you heard about this immigration issue, Carmine? Uh, I know a little about Andrew. I've been on with him before. He's a cool dude. Yes, he, he knows a lot about it. And I gotta say, do you know who, we'll talk about this, but do you know who immigration is a, the number one issue with a recent poll found? Probably Latinos. Yes, Hispanic voters. So those racist Hispanic voters, how dare they well, question I'll tell you anything about immigration? I'll tell you something real quickly. I, I went to school quickly, see? Uh, I went to school in North New Jersey, uh, from North New Jersey originally, and most of my friends my entire life were either black or Hispanic. And I got along really, really well with the Hispanic kids probably more than any other group of kids because our cultures are so strikingly similar. And the, the one thing I will tell you is the one thing a, a Hispanic person or a Spanish person who came here legally wants to hear about is the rights of people who didn't come here legally. Yeah, and the second like, thing that they, they don't like to, if I'm correct, is the Democrats' position on abortion, which is anything goes. That's deeply disturbing to a lot of Hispanic people, many of whom are Catholic, right? Very people, very religious people. They don't play that nonsense. They don't play that nonsense. I'm, again, I went to Catholic school. These were my friends. This is who, you know, I mean, this is not something they're okay with. And I always, I've often wondered how, I've often wondered how, because again, considering the number of black and Hispanic people I've known my whole life, you know, and I watch as their views really align with ours, I've often wondered how they're not mass voting Republican, like, in crazy numbers because well in in two weeks they could be if you go again I'm stereotyping but if you go issue by issue with black and Hispanic voters issue by issue okay and you say what do you think of this issue what do you think of that issue they are going to agree with us 98 times out of 100 yet they're voting Democrat it's 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 baffling it's frustrating it's because the Democrats keep lying to them the Democrats keep lying to Hispanic and but, black but voters how, and say that Republicans are racist. But how long can you be lied to? At a certain point, you believing the lie makes you as culpable as anybody else. Well, I think we're finding out how long. And I think you're going to see that Hispanics turn out for Republicans in great numbers in two weeks. But let's take a, go to the boom I agree. and talk about some other stuff. Carmine, can you please take us to the boom? I will boom you. This is the Bachelor. You're planning on becoming a wrestling announcer, correct? Or well, I was. intro uh, boxing? I was involved in wrestling, as you know, for quite some time. And you got to have a little flair, bro. Got to have a little flair for the gold, baby. Now, uh, we had, you know, we have great callers here on the backstory. And one of them is Ingrid from D.C., and because of the Julian Assange issue, she's been asking about jury nullification. Now, do you know anything about jury nullification yourself, Carmine? I do not. Right. And so I, do I don't not. know much about it. So when Ingrid called, I said, I don't know much about it. But I found something very interesting about it. <laughs> Excuse me. So let's what? get that clip ready. We're, we're going to hear a clip. And... 
I'll play the clip first, then I'll tell you where I found the clip, because it's a good story. So hit it. Number four, nullification. Refuse to comply. Refuse to convict. Practically forgotten, the extremely powerful weapon of nullification has recently been dusted off and is being put to good use. The concept behind nullification is very simple. The people determine what the government has the power to do, not the other way around. When policymakers in Washington grant themselves legal authority to do things that violate the legal restrictions on their power, the people have the right and the duty to restrain them. Two dozen American states nullified the Real ID Act of 2005. More than a dozen states have successfully defied the federal government over medical marijuana. Nullification initiatives of all kinds involving the recent healthcare legislation, cap and trade, and the Second Amendment are popping up everywhere. The indispensable source for developments connected to nullification can be found at TenthAmendmentCenter.com. Its legislative tracking page covers a variety of nullification initiatives and tracks their progress in state legislatures across the country. State nullification, even the threat of state nullification, is a tool that's been used effectively for hundreds of years in this country. From the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798 to the unconstitutional searches and seizures of 1807 to 1809, from resistance to conscription in 1812 to the northern state's obstruction of the fugitive slave laws, nullification has provided a nonviolent way for citizens to push back against federal overreach. But state nullification isn't our only option. Another form is jury nullification, and it has the potential to be even more powerful. Jury nullification occurs when a jury concludes that a defendant is technically guilty, but fails to convict the defendant on the grounds that the law in question is unjust. While jury nullification is legal, judges frequently do not inform juries of this power. In the United States, jury nullification first appeared in the pre-Civil War era when juries sometimes refused to convict for violations of the Fugitive Slave Act. Later, during Prohibition, juries often nullified alcohol control laws, possibly as often as 60% of the time. This resistance may have contributed to the adoption of the 21st Amendment repealing Prohibition. To demonstrate the enormity of this direct power we were given over our government, imagine the following hypothetical scenario. I'm a juror, and you've been dragged into court for refusing to pay your taxes to the network's collection instrument, the IRS. Unrepentant, you stand and state the following. I will no longer voluntarily fund an institution that violates the law with impunity and engages in morally reprehensible behavior. I will no longer be complicit in crime. I would rather be punished for obeying my conscience than be rewarded for ignoring it. It's very unlikely that your defense attorney would support this approach. But remember that this is just a hypothetical scenario to demonstrate the power we still possess as citizens. If I'm a juror in the case, you better believe that I'm going to argue for nullification. If that fails, I'm going to ensure a hung jury. There will be no conviction this time around. Now, multiply that same scenario a couple dozen times, then a couple hundred times, and then a couple thousand times. The power over our incomes, stolen by the network in 1913, will be rightfully returned to the people. Laws that cannot be successfully prosecuted cannot survive. Nullification is our final nonviolent check on the abuse of government power. Now, so what did you think of that, Carmine? Good explanation? That's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, and it really That's does a- paint, paint out a path forward for a lot of problems people see today, I think. Do you agree? 
Yeah, I didn't even know that option existed, bro. Yeah, because they, they and you, you see why they don't want you to know about jury, jury notification because and this applies to the Assange thing. So let me point out where that's from and how I found it. I'll come to how I found it in a second because I've got a clip. In fact, let's get the Amazon banning books clip. This clip sets up how I found that clip. That clip was from a book called Tragedy and Hope 101 by an author named Joe Plummer. P-L-U-M-M-E-R. Not Plummer like, you know, fixing your sink, but Plummer with I got like Chris like Christopher Plummer, the vampire actor. And Joe Plummer wrote that book. And I'll tell you how I found Joe Plummer. That book, by the way, Tragedy and Hope 101, is fantastic. And I'll talk about it in a second and tell everybody how you can get a copy free online right now and the audiobook free as well. And it's a great book. But let's play the clip about Amazon banning books because this is how I found it. Hit it. Amazon.com, and you remember this started as a bookstore, an online bookstore. It's the biggest bookstore in the world. They have everything. There's nothing you can't find on Amazon, including used books. So if you were to go onto Amazon to read books by a man who is in the news and whose ideas are directly bearing on world events, you look for a guy called Alexander Dugin. Dugin is one of Russia's most famous authors and political philosophers. He doesn't work for the government. He doesn't work for Vladimir Putin. He's just a philosopher. So if you're interested in, like, what are they thinking over there, you would search Dugin's author page on Amazon, but you would not find any results. Really? Kind of a big author to be left off Amazon. So we reach out to Amazon to ask, why can't we find any books by this guy? And then we realized because he's been banned from Amazon. So then we asked Amazon for a list of all books and authors who've been banned from their platform. And they wouldn't give it to us. So we went back and forth, back and forth, and finally Amazon provided a six-word response. And we're quoting, Amazon complies with all applicable laws. Hmm, applicable laws. Well, in the United States, there are no laws against publishing books because we have the First Amendment. The government can never, under any circumstances, censor any book, period or anything that you have to say, period. Because that's the core of our Bill of Rights. Then we learned that Amazon and the Justice Department were ignoring our Bill of Rights. Amazon apparently based this decision on a Treasury Department designation concerning, quote, disinformation. And that designation applies not only to Dugin, but also to his family, though not to his daughter, who was murdered recently by the Ukrainian government, but we're not allowed to say that. What did she do wrong? Well, I guess she said the wrong thing, but that's cool because they're fighting for freedom. But that's not the point. The point is, in our country, which is very different from Ukraine, we're allowed to read whatever we want. But we can't now because the Biden administration is demanding that the biggest bookseller in the world censor books that they disagree with. And Amazon complies without asking any questions. Now, this is as clear a violation as the First Amendment as you could concoct in a law school class. So then we reach out to the Treasury Department. Did this really happen? Yeah, it did. They essentially confirmed it. Quote, we don't comment on possible enforcement matters, but the Treasury Department continues to vigorously enforce Russia-related sanctions. Oh, really? There is no legal basis for ever censoring any book if you're the U.S. government. That is not allowed. That's the main thing that's not allowed in this country, period. 
We don't care who wrote the book. You're allowed to read it. You can read any book you want. You're an American. And if you cease to be able to read any book you want, it doesn't matter if you're an American, because you're just a serf. Well, Amazon has refused to provide us with a list of the other books they are banning, but they clearly are banning a lot of different books. And why can't we know what those books are? We're going to continue to look into this. And if there are any legal challenges to the book banning, which is one click from book burning, we hope there are legal challenges. We'll let you know about those as well. So there you go, Carmine. Have you heard about that story before? We've talked about Dugan, I think, on this show, correct? Correct. His daughter, Dugina, was killed. That's incredible. That's incredible. And it's exactly and go against private, everything our founding fathers believed, right? Well, yeah, but when you can go to a private business and, and command that they do that and then they do it. Because there was a time, if you remember, the government would go to an Apple or a Microsoft or a Google and say such and such. We believe such and such committed this crime. And it could be child trafficking. OK. And that we, we need to see what's inside their phone. And you wouldn't get it. I mean, it, these would be serious crimes. Okay, serious crimes. And, and they wouldn't give it to you because, hey, that's not your place, right? But now suddenly these big corporations, and I, I'm going to guess, I don't know, some government subsidies might be changing hands here for some of these corporations. But all of a sudden these well, big corporations well, you know, are fact, now— Jeff Bezos has a big contract with the CIA, for instance. He has a huge contract— for data storage with the CIA. So in some senses, he's already connected. And he owns the Washington Post. Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post scares me more than Elon Musk owning Twitter. Right? Because Elon Musk owning Twitter is Elon Musk owning Twitter is irrelevant. Twitter is right. a is a is a platform for people like us that are political. You understand what I'm saying? No. Twitter No, one of the reasons we we love you, Carmine, is I'll bet your instinct is much like mine. When you hear Dugan's books are banned by the government on Amazon, what's it make you want I'm to do to Dugan's books? I, I'm literally already Googling how I can get them. Okay, so let me tell you how I got it. it. There's a service called Scribd, and I'm not recommending it as a business, but I'm saying that's where I found it because we're not I'm familiar with station. I'm familiar yeah, with Scribd. No, I mean. So S C R I B D, no E, first is the name name of it. And uh, Alexander's Jewish books. Yeah, go ahead. Well, like you said, the first thing I want to do if you tell me I can't read something or I can't see something is I want to read and or see that thing. Because what is and it so, you don't want me to know? And Look, so here's I why I don't trust there. you. And Dugan's books here's and audiobooks are available on Scribe. Go ahead, Carmine. Here's my issue with Ukraine. Here's why I don't trust them. Okay, I don't trust anybody when I'm not allowed to hear the other person's side. I'm only allowed to hear the Ukraine side. And God forbid you say, hey, you know, here's some valid points Vladimir Putin has, which I do not ever agree with anything of any world leader, like 100 percent. I don't agree that Vladimir Putin is doing everything 100 percent correct. I don't agree that that, that Biden or, or Trump or anybody did everything 100 percent correct. That's foolish. OK, but when I say to people, well, look, here's because people have said, well, this is just like the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I go, well, yeah, here's how we're the ones that are stacking missiles by Russia this time. So it is like the Cuban Missile Crisis, but not in the way you're thinking. 
we're the guys doing the the bad thing. And people don't want to hear that. And that makes, you know, oh, well, Carmine's a Russian sympathizer. Where's your check from Putin? I don't know. He's pretty rich. I'd like to get a check from Putin. Putin, if you're listening, give me a call. I'd like a check. Haven't gotten one ever. Now, so I went over to Scribe to see if they had it. And sure enough, they do. But you know how these services, they see what books are like and they recommend other books? You know what I'm Absolutely. saying? They'll, they'll, yes. they'll say, if you like this book on wrestling, you might like this book on wrestling, for instance. Does that make sense? So I yes. went over to Scribe and they recommended this book by Joe Plummer called Tragedy and Hope. 101. Now, Tragedy and Hope is a book by a guy named Carol Quigley. Carol Quigley was a professor at Georgetown. He taught, among other people, Bill Clinton. And he wrote a book called Tragedy and Hope. So all stuff I talk about, about the Anglo-American establishment and about Cecil Rhodes, that stuff I got from Carol Quigley because it's a very factual book. And he draws references to and everything. And by the way, Carol Quigley is not opposed to the Anglo-American establishment. He's not a hater. He he agrees with a lot of it, but he still exposed it. Does that make sense? So if you yeah, were sure. a guy who just hated it, I'd actually think he was a worse source. But he's a guy who's just pointing out the truth about it. Now, this guy, Joe Plummer. He wrote a book, Tragedy and Hope 101. Here's a problem. If I told you maybe you should read Tragedy and Hope, okay, Carmine? It's like 1,300 pages of dense pages. And if I said it's wow. a very important book, you're reasonably, it could be the most important book in the world. You're not going to jump in, into that, right? Just, you, it's, you know, you <laughs> might be hard. Around to it. Right. You might get around to it eventually, but it's not like you're going to say, yeah, I'll do it by this weekend late. So Tragedy and Hope 101 is about a 100-page book that summarizes the book. And it does it in plain English, and it's very clear. And not only is it unscribed, which costs like 15 bucks a month to, to read all their books, but you can get oh, it wow. for free. But you can get it for free. At tragedyandhope.info.info. And not only is the book there in multiple languages, as a PDF you can download. So you can download it and don't have to read it online. But it's there as an audiobook as well. So you can read the entire thing. And this guy, Joe Plummer, I'll mention one thing parenthetically about him. He's also, interestingly enough, a drummer. He plays drums. And like Mark Frost, the frequent guest on this show, he's a Rush fan. And he does a couple of drum covers of like Tom Sawyer and YYZ. So let me say, that makes him my new hero. So he wrote a book on Tragedy and Hope, and he plays the drums like Neil Parrott. Okay, that's cool. Does it make sense? I'm a nerd. What can I say, Carmine? So this guy wrote a great book, and I recommend strongly— Everyone get it and read it as soon as possible because he goes into the history of the Anglo-American establishment. And like you just heard, he's also got, 
I'll, I'll tell you one thing. We'll go to Ian in one sec, Carmine. One thing I like about this guy's book. Now, by the way, it was written like 10 years ago. Things were obviously better 10 years ago. But because it was written 10 years ago, he's very hopeful about the future. He's not a bummer to read. And I like that. And I think it's important with everything that's going on, people not give up hope. How do you feel about that, Carmine? Be realistic, but keep hope. But be realistic. Yeah. Being realistic yeah. is very important. Yeah, but, but I also but yes. think not, not giving up. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So let's go to a short break, Carmine, and have you, we'll have you take us out of here. And then, then we'll talk to Ian Schilling in London about what the hell's going on in England with their system. Carmine, do the honors, please. This is the backstory. backstory and on the air on the radio on 105.5 fm am 1390 in washington dc the capital of the empire of lies joining us now from london is great friend of the show geopolitical analyst ian schilling hey ian how you doing i'm doing great hi guys so what's going on ian happy new prime happy new prime Minister day ian oh dear it's terrible. They've installed a globalist puppet as prime minister. <laughs> he's, he's pushing the the uh, the man-made climate change hoax, all these green policies that are just going to impoverish everybody. And um, he's pushing the central bank digital currencies, which is basically human enslavement because the government will then be able to control what you can and can't spend your own money on. So it's absolutely terrible. I mean, six weeks ago, something like six weeks ago, the Tory party voted and all the polls said, we want anybody except Sunak. That's what they said. Any other candidate, they did it they did it while the, while the uh, you know, replacement from Bojo election was going on. And um, they had a poll and the top eight candidates, they, they, they said, well, we prefer any of them to, to, to Sunak. So then the Tory party rigged, rigged the so-called election and say you've got to get a hundred votes to be it be in in the in the in the race. And um, Bojo Bojo pulled out, so there's nobody else with a hundred votes. So he got he got installed without any any asking of the Tory party membership this time. So he's even even less democratic than Liz Trust. <laughs> <laughs> got yes. voted in by, by about 0.4%. And that was hard to do. Population. And there's that famous Ian Schilling laugh, by the way. He's <laughs> laughing at the fact that Rishi, Rishi Sunak got into office without a vote, right? Yeah, well, it's only only the, the vote of the 320 or however many Tory MPs there are, yes. And so this is a guy who couldn't beat Liz Truss yeah. when there was a vote. A few weeks ago. And so yep. let's talk about Bojo for a second, because over the weekend, Bojo was threatening to make an appearance again. I, I say Freddy Krueger or Jason like 
rising from the dead. But I never thought there was any reasonable chance. Did you think that there's well, any way Bojo was coming back, Ian? Well, he's the least worst candidate, so it was a possibility. But, but I mean, the Tory party is just imploding. I mean, it's 30-odd percent down in the polls, which is absolutely massive. And, you know, all, all, the, all this, I can't, see, I can't see ordinary people voting for Sunak. So it's not it's going to con continue. I mean, he's an ex-Goldman Sachs banker. He's got links to the WEF. He's, his wife is the daughter of... Uh, Indian billionaire, the Infosys founder, and she's got $500 million worth of Infosys shares. So, you know, he's, he's just he's just an oligarch working for the oligarchs. So, I mean, the so, Labour Party, the opposition, are going to play this up like hell, saying, you know, he's nearly a billionaire, you know, he's working for the billionaires. Now, also, England is facing a lot of financial problems now. Let me say clearly, the people in England Right. I heard heard more rage, for instance, the amount of money people are paying for their homes has gone up massively. Is that true? Yeah. yeah. The energy costs, the heating costs, electricity costs have gone up massively. Yes. And they're going to go up and go up a load more in the spring, in April. So, yeah, people, people are going to be paying five or ten times as much of that for their heating costs by by you know, April next year or something. Now, but Prime Minister Richie, by the way, is he the first British Prime Minister named Richie? Yes. Okay. Richie. So, Richie it's Rich. Richie, what? <laughs> not Richie. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, now, do you think that in some senses, uh, Mahatma Gandhi is rolling over? Because they're making a big deal that he's the first Indian who's, uh, 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 are they called... Asian, you in Great Britain, you refer to Indian people as Asian or South Asian. It's not inaccurate, but no one here does that. Asian no. means like Chinese, Japanese yes. to Americans. Yeah, or, right, or East Asian might be Vietnamese or Malaysian or somewhere like that. But that's what they mean in America by Asian. It's Malaysia, Indeed. Cambodia and China and Japan. Yeah, East Asia. Yes. Yeah. So it does it. You think does that affect his outlook on policy at all? Well, I don't know. It might do. It might do because, I mean, he's got half a billion dollars worth of Infosys shares. Right? And Infosys is, is um, a programmer outsource company. So it writes software for other companies. Right? It's got loads of Indian programmers, dirt cheap Indian programmers that replace, you know, American software programmers and European software programmers. And they got an office in Moscow still, and they're still doing business with Russia. And obviously India is still doing a load of trade with, with Russia. It's increased the trade it's doing with Russia because it's buying loads more oil, and it's also buying weapons systems from Russia and whatever else. And India is definitely not going against Russia because of the Ukraine invasion, is it? It's doing more deals, right? It's making the most of it. So I don't know whether that will affect he what he does with Ukraine. He might be a bit softer on Ukraine rather than all the neocon hawks. So we'll have to wait and see what he does. Now, is is that how he made his money? It's through Indian outsourcing. Well, 
no. Well, he's he, most of his money comes from his wife because she's got five hundred million dollars of of Infosys shares from her father. Like she inherited them. He gave them to her. So that's most of his wealth. And then the other two hundred or three hundred, he was a Goldman Sachs banker for a while, and then he was a partner in hedge funds. So he's a hedge fund manager. Okay. So he made a load of money out of hedge funds, and then he became an MP in a safe seat, in a safe Tory seat. They they just just parachuted him in. He didn't he didn't live in the in the constituency that he was parachuted into. He bought a mansion afterwards, and he's now spending hundreds of thousands of pounds upgrading it. No, so it's, it's, uh, uh, is is it near City of London? No, it's in Yorkshire. So it's three hundred miles away. Oh wow. These constituencies in Yorkshire. That's interesting. So this is a guy, he's also the youngest prime minister ever, right? Yeah. I think, well, pick the younger. I don't know. I think he's the youngest in pick the younger. So he's 45 years old, I guess, right around there. And yeah. that's young for prime ministers. And oh, this is a guy, yeah. this is a guy who became finance minister under Boris Johnson and he was, people said, if I'm correct, that he was unqualified for that position, right? Wasn't that the knock against him that he was, he had too ex little experience? Yeah, go ahead. He's just a yes man, right? He was he was given that position by Bojo because he was a yes man and would do, would do whatever Bojo told him to do. That's why he got the position in the first place. It wasn't because of any of his experience or qualifications. It was because he was a yes man, okay? And he would just, just spend billions, whatever Boris, Boris wanted to spend. Whereas the previous chancellor re rebelled against the government borrowing excessively and spending excessively, and he didn't want to go along with the, with the huge budget deficits, right? So that's why he was kicked out. That was that was Sergeant, whatever, whatever his name is. Can't remember now. But he was another Indian. He got booted out because he didn't want to didn't want to do hundreds of billions of dollars of de deficits. Right? But Sunak was all happy with it. So he he just went along. I mean, he'll do whatever he's told to do. Right? So whoever whoever is handling him, right? It won't be the electorate that decides what he does. He'll do whatever his handlers do. So it's be the WEF and the Goldman Sachs bankers and the corporations and whatever else. So he'll just do what he's told to do. Now, so Carmine, do you have any questions about Rishi Sunak for Ian? Carmine? Carmine seems to be gone, but this, he'll this be back. Dang, this dang mute button. No, this, this dang mute button. My, my chin keeps hitting the mute button, man. <laughs> okay. So, so, so Ian, the first thing, the, the first thing I want to know is how are Piglet and Pooh doing in the Hundred Acre Woods? Piglet and Pooh, what? <laughs> you ever hear Christopher Robin? He's selling like Christopher yes, Robin. Yes, I do. Yes, but I mean, what's this got to do with Rishi Sunak? <laughs> anyway, my my question is, my question is, um. Was this the plan all along? Like during the Boris Johnson years, during the Liz Truss. I kind of feel like Liz Truss was set up to fail, even though she stunk anyway. But was the plan all along to get this guy? Because I feel like watching it over here in America, and I don't understand your system of politics at all. I feel like your votes don't mean anything. Like, like in America, 
we get the illusion that our votes count. But you guys don't even like get the illusion. Am I am I wrong? Am I am I reading this wrong? No, you're right. It's a it's a very plausible theory that this was this was all played out all along, and that's why all the globalists went and rebelled against Boris Johnson months ago, right, and played up all Partygate and whatever, right, because it was all all the globalists that were against Boris Johnson and trying to stir things up, right. So the, they because didn't that guy, it's a point a globalist puppet, and Sunak is a globalist didn't that guy in Germany have like like parties where people were getting drugged and stuff and they didn't kick him out, but Boris Johnson got kicked out? Like, and then the yes. other thing is, oh no, that like, was you that, guys... that was that was Finland or somewhere, wasn't it? The, the Finnish prime minister is a woman, quite young. She's about forty, and she was she was on drug drug fueled drug fueled parties. Yeah, she got kicked out because she's a globalist. No. I don't kick You're out globalists. <laughs> You're accurate about the Finnish prime minister. However, Olaf Scholz, the German, German prime minister, got people drunk and was apparently sexually assaulting them. That's what they were sexually assaulting at the parties that they his party arranged. Wasn't it? He didn't yeah. actually do it, but they were they were official party events of his party where women got sexually assaulted. Yes, that, that's and then right. my other question is like. And the reason I say this to you, Ian, is because I also look at Brexit. Here's what I didn't understand. It's like, all right, well, Brexit won, right? And then they spent years trying to overdo the vote. And I'm like, I don't understand this this system. You made a vote. The vote is over. So do you just keep having votes until you get what you want? I, I don't understand. Well, that's the European Union method. Yes. <laughs> you just voting keep voting. Until until people the right okay. Right. So the vote really no. doesn't mean anything. Well, no, I mean, well, I don't. I mean, if if Keir Starmer gets in, then it could well get overturned. He's a to, he's a total globalist waiting for the WEF. So, he, he, I mean, we've got no hope because the, the the current party in power and the main opposition are both absolutely horrible. And Keir Starmer's That's even uh, Keir Starmer's just a Tony Blair clone, total globalist fascist, a warmonger, and whatever else, totally corrupt, everything, horrible. Uh, Sunak's no. horrible. So we we haven't got a chance. I mean, Farage <laughs> is now making mutterings that he's, he's going to re-enter politics to destroy the Conservative Party, but I, I don't see it going anywhere. I think he's just talking in the wind. But I mean, something's got to happen to improve things. Now, now, Carmine, this is the conspiracy theory to watch. The actual goal seems to be, like Ian's stating, to get Keir Starmer from the Labour Party in. Am I right, Ian? Is it that's very, what very the that's, what the, that's, what, that's what the WEF want and whatever, yes. Yeah, and is it very predictable? I'm going to make a prediction. Within about six months, they're going to call for elections. And then... Keir Starmer is going to win by default because Sunak won't be able to do anything to solve the problems. If he wanted to do something to solve the problems in the UK, what he'd do is stop the sanctions against Russia and stop following along with the EU and actually act like the head of a sovereign nation. Instead, in the interests of the country you're supposed to be representing, yes. <laughs> that would be yeah. a miracle, wouldn't it? So is it fairly predictable that Keir Starmer's going to be elected? And by well, the way, Keir Starmer's got no mandate. 
but simply they're running out of candidates, right, Ian? Yeah, but the Tory MPs won't won't rebel against the government because half of them will lose their seats. Right? If the election was held tomorrow, two thirds of them would probably be gone. Right? So they're not gonna vote for that. Right? So they're gonna hang on to the last death in the hope that something will change. Right? The only the only possible thing is that, you know, they vote they 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 they, they vote for it at, a general election and then get Keir Starmer in and then the economic chaos is so bad that he's out within a year. So that would be the only only theory that, that might work for the Tory MPs. But meanwhile, two-thirds of them have already lost a job, right? And they won't get back in, right? So, I mean, they don't care about the country or whatever. And all of these people only care about their personal interests and power and money and bribes and wealth. So... What do you think, Carmine? It makes me sad. It makes <laughs> well, me sad. It's hopeless in the UK. I mean, we haven't got... There's no semblance of democracy in the UK whatsoever. And I feel like we're headed there too, Ian, though. I feel, that's the thing. Is like I get depressed because I hear you, and then, you know, the segment before, we're talking about banning books, and it's like, I feel like, you know, where 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 you go, we're going, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. America's just, just the same, man. Yeah? There's been an oligarchy yeah. for a long, long time, since since the 80s or whatever, at least. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, Ian, I have a question for you. I've been, you know, I talk a lot, lot about history on this show, and I'm very curious. If you're a kid in England, what are you taught in school? What's the, the general statement on Oliver Cromwell? Because, you know, I'm Stranahan, Irish-American. Cromwell was bad to the Irish, to put it mildly. <laughs> he massacred at, them. He absolutely massacred them. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> he did mass murder. Right. Do you know much about Cromwell, Ian? I mean, uh, uh, Carmine? I did not, no. So Cromwell came in around the time of Charles I. Well, he, and, uh, he overthrew Charles I in the Civil War and then beheaded him, didn't he? And then... Yeah. Then, yes. part, then he brought in all Puritan laws that, that that to be a religious observance and whatever, and and that's when all the Puritans started. And then Oliver Cromwell invaded Ireland and massacred huge numbers of the of the uh, civilian population, right? Starved them to death, murdered them, whatever. Uh, and he also, yes, also he was one of those guys, Carmine, who would take over and t just to teach him a lesson would say every man, woman, and child in this village needs to be killed. Does that make sense? You, you get it? He's that kind of guy. Wow. Right, Ian? Yeah, that's what he did. Yeah. And in Parliament, in front of Parliament, I understand there's a statue of Oliver Cromwell, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a statue right in front of the Houses of Parliament. He's treated as a hero in the official history books because he overthrew a tyrant king who dissolved parliament and wanted to do wars and do whatever he wanted and uh, and didn't want to take any notice of parliament because parliament at the time had the power to approve or reject taxes that the king wanted to impose. So Charles I wanted to impose more taxes to go to war with France and whoever he was going to try, going to, try to go to war with, and Parliament rebelled and said, we don't want to put up taxes to pay for your war. So that's why the Civil War happened. 
1645 or whenever it was. Now, I find it interesting that we'll have another king named Charles to oversee. You know, it doesn't seem to work out well for England when kings are named Charles. Because <laughs> there's, no. <laughs> right, there's a civil war in the first one, and this King Charles is going to be overseeing, you know, people in England, three prime ministers in two months. People in England are aware of how silly this makes the UK look, right? Are people aware of it? They, they've got to be. Well, I don't know how much of the British population is, but they, the rest of Europe is laughing their heads off at it. Because <laughs> they didn't like like the UK for leaving the European Union. And now they see all this farce going on in UK politics. They're, the rest of Europe, like the Germans and the French and the Dutch, are laughing their heads off at it. Right? But, but, of course, the mainstream media, the mainstream media's most important ta this task is to protect the establishment. So they're not laughing about it at all. They, they they're all reporting as if it's, you know, really serious so instead of a total clown show. So, Carmine, you know, you you see, I, I think, part of the reason for the tension between the Irish and the royals you could see at the Queen's funeral. Was that part of it? Yes. I mean, it's, it's such an insult to Irish people in general, that Cromwell's got a statue, and that didn't go up in like 1700, then went up a few years ago, correct? Well, I don't know how long ago it was, probably during Victoria's time, 150 years ago or something like that. I think it may have even been after that. I'd have to check though. But uh, Carmine, what say you? What is the so the, the, the Irish really, really hate the monarchy, right? Because Irish Twitter went kind of crazy when the Queen died. Like, I mean, I, I, I understand there's a history, but I think it was kind of rude to celebrate anybody dying. The Irish hate the English because the English have been mass murdering them since about 1280. It was the Norman barons that first invaded our Ireland. After Oliver Cromwell took over in 1266, the Norman barons wanted more land and they invaded Ireland about 1289 or something, a few of them, and then started slaughtering the Irish and taking control of the land, right? The farmland. It's been going on since 1289 that the English have been murdering, murdering the Irish. It didn't stop until the Irish independence in 1922. And again, we but they still nothing about this history, right, Carmine? Correct. We don't we don't know anything about it. No. And and you say in England, Cromwell's regarded as a hero. Yeah. In school, yeah. yeah school school history books. Yeah, he's treated as a hero. Yes. Yeah. So there you go, Carmine. Does that explain some of the hostility? It does. It does, because I thought it was rude, you know? Well, there's more, more to it than that. I mean, there was the Irish potato famine in the 1840s, where, I mean, in the 1840s, all the Irish peasants lived on potatoes, and there was a huge potato bite, right? and all the crops failed. All the potatoes went rotten in the ground. So all the Irish people were starving, right? So instead of giving some food aid to the starving Irish, the, the, the aristocrats who owned all the land in Ireland pulled even more food out of Ireland so more people would starve. 
Right? And that's why there's wow. so many so many Americans came from Ireland because they came from that period in in the mid 1840s, from mid 1800s, you know, 1840 onwards, because the English deliberately starved them. It's genocide. Right? They wiped out I don't know 30 percent of the population. Right? Can you imagine how Americans feel would feel if Canadians murdered 100 million Americans, or how how how, how how Canadians would feel if the Americans murdered 30, 20 or 30 million Canadians, right? That's, that's the level of it. Now, Ian, we also had the foreign minister from the UK suddenly come to Washington this weekend. What do you know about that? I don't know about that. Well, see, he met with Lloyd Austin, and apparently they discussed... Have you been hearing all the rumors about the Ukraine minister having or the dirty bombs? Oh, forgive me, the defense minister. Forgive right. me. So right. talk about that. Well, I mean, they were discussing how much arms to, to send to Ukraine and how to escalate the war, and how to how to you know one of the one of the ways to escalate the war is to do a nuclear false flag attack with a dirty bomb, which has all gone out. So the Kremlin has phoned up just about all the European uh, European capitals and America and warned them that Ukraine is plan planning a, a nuclear dirty bomb, and they, to escalate the war, right? Because they've been... Oh, I heard this. ...for weeks that, you know, if Russia sets off a nuke in Ukraine, that will send it to a whole different level. So, you know, this this is just like the, the Saudi prince going around in, I don't know, when it was 2018, saying, shall we do a false flag with chemical weapons in Syria to escalate the war? And all the UK and America said, oh, yeah, that's a lovely idea, we'll do that. And now, now the UK defence minister has gone to America and said, shall we, shall we do a nuclear false flag in Ukraine? I was like, oh, the CIA love that idea. <laughs> now, now, also, I hear some people saying... They don't think that Ukraine would do, do a dirty bomb. They think Ukraine would realize how insane that was. And I don't agree. I think Ukraine was launching missiles and shells at a nuclear power plant. Am I right about that, Ian? Well, this is a country that was Zelensky, bombing. Zelensky would do it, wouldn't he? As long as, it, long as it's a few hundred miles away from Kiev. No, he doesn't want it anywhere near Kiev, does he? he? Wants it wants it on the new border between Russia and Ukraine, doesn't it? Is that be five hundred miles away from Kiev, so Kiev would escape the fallout, wouldn't it? Well, it might blow into Poland or somewhere. <laughs> he doesn't care about that. <laughs> but, uh, he's, I mean, he's insane. He's totally corrupt. I mean, he's got a billion dollars in, in sitting in bank accounts in Costa Rica and wherever that he's got from total corruption and being bribed by the oligarchs. So. He couldn't care less. He's, I mean, if he did a false flag, all the all the Western media immediately blame Russia. There'd be no analysis of it. They'd just accept his word that it was Russia, wouldn't they? So, I mean, it's quite quite conceivable. It's a plot between Zelensky and the, and the British establishment to do a nuclear false flag, and the CIA are being well on board with it. So it's quite possible. Biden would be well on board with it as well. Yes. And... and is it increasingly clear to you that the Nord Stream 2 attack was obviously done by the U.S. or allies in NATO and had nothing to do with Russia? Because the Swedes and the Danes won't release the results of their investigation. 
and the Germans German won't either. The, sw- the, right. s- the three countries nearest to it, the Sweden, Denmark and Germany, won't release the results of their investigation because it would compromise their national security because it involves an allied or friendly country. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's not really the US or UK or Poland doing it, is it? <laughs> No, right. Oh, and wow. this is what they do every time, Carmine. They blame Russia for things that would be, in A, insane if Russia did. For instance, why would it bomb its own pipeline? But then they don't even... Well, well you know what's maddening? Logical <laughs> conclusion, thought- which is, if they want to destroy their own pipeline, do it closer to home. Why go to Sweden to do it? Does that make sense, Carmine? Well, I'll tell you this. The first thing I uh, I noticed today on CNN when they said about the dirty bomb. And I said, oh, okay. So they're planning on bombing themselves and blaming Russia. Right. And that's what they've done consistently. So, Ian, thanks so much. Remember, remind people again how they can follow your analysts, your analysis. Forgive me. Uh, well, I'm on getter.com on Ian as Ian56A, and I'm on Telegram as Ian56News. And also, I see you over on VK.com. What's your yeah, name well, on VK? Your name, VK, right? I'm Ian 56, or Ian Schilling on, uh, I'm Ian Schilling on VK. Yes. And so, Ian, great appearance, as always. Stay safe. Stay warm somehow. It might be tricky. <laughs> Go to Sunak's house. But uh, the great Ian Schilling. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about other stuff including New York's new problems and Obama's reticence on the backstory. Backstory, the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. And it's a Carmine Monday. The great Carmine Sabia is joining us. Carmine, what is the name of the show? This is the Backstory. So I want to thank Ian Schilling, great appearance as always. And Carmine, even though it's still confusing, do you understand what's going on in England better after hearing hearing from Ian Schilling? I understand it better, but I don't understand it. Because it's beyond understanding. Does that make sense? Well, but, but you, like I said, yeah, they, they vote for they vote for the party, and here's the prime minister we're voting for, but now he's gone because we don't like him, and we vote for Brexit, but we're just going to keep voting until we get what we want, so your vote doesn't really matter anyway, and it doesn't make sense. Well, so doesn't make sense would apply to a description of our immigration system. But to put us straight on that, what's going on politically with that? Andrew Arthur is joining us this hour. And Carmine, take us to the boom and let's let's talk about some of the stuff. Welcome back to The Backstory. Well done. Let's go to the calls. (laughs) 202-521-1320. Owl killer, you are on. What's on your mind? You know, I was thinking to thinking back over this, the last couple of weeks with the whole uh, Kanye episode. 
And I almost think that he is trying to show people, like, I, I think he made extreme statements to show who's really in control of things. And one thing that I, I you know, you've, you know, how many times have you heard the old adage where you know who um, is running things when you know who you can't uh, criticize? And I don't like the blanket. I don't like the whole, um, I don't like to paint a group, you know, with just one brush. Um, but there does see, there does seem to be, um, it seems to be like an atheist, an atheistic, um, group of people who claim, you know, they claim Jewish heritage, but they don't follow, you know, they, they, they're not Orthodox. They don't follow any, you know, they don't follow the, they don't even necessarily believe in God, but they have this internationalist view of things. And I think that is the, I think that's what Kanye was talking about. So that's one um, part I wanted to cover. That's one thing I wanted to cover today. And I, well, so I also think, let me just add to what you're saying. I think if we talked to a lot of rappers who politically agree with the Democrats, we would find that they also have some negative feelings about Jewish people. I don't have any doubt about that. There's a certain amount of tension. That's not okay, between, though. What's that? That's not okay, though. Anti-Semitism is still anti-Semitism. What he said was anti-Semitic. It was deplorable. I, I'm not saying it's okay. However, I'm saying attacking one person because you don't like their politics while letting other people, you know, for, for oh, instance, correct. Yeah, I remember like when I was saying stuff about George Soros, we were like, oh, that's anti-Semitic. I'm like, why? He's one man. That. See, Carmen, that's the that's the that is a, a a major issue where it's like I'll give you an example, right? So that that's that, that is people have been hiding behind this anti-Semitism, so it, they're almost uncriticizable, and that is that that, that is some that is an issue. But I'll give you an example. That person when he um, when he went on Nori's podcast, Nori has a line in one of his songs on uh, on the CNN album where he says, uh, you can die on the cross like a, cri- a Christian, so F you and your weak religion. And that's perfectly okay. There's no, that, that is, I think that's a point that Kanye is making, that you can just disrespect and, you know, how many, t- look, I, I've listened to rap my entire life, but hey, there, there have been I can't tell you how many times I've heard anti-white uh, stuff inside of rap. Absolutely. So why why is it why is what he's saying so bad that they're willing to cancel his bank account and basically try, they're not going to be able to cancel the man? Uh, that's just they're going to try, but they're they're not going to be able to do so. Why is why is a one group so off limits and like you know, look i i grew up in new jersey just like you carmine you know we we grew i grew up with um very uh faithful people adherent to the torah you know they they would walk the temple then there were some people that they they clearly did not you know they, they were uh jewish by birth but they they had nothing like they didn't they were completely atheist but the I, I think Kanye has a has a point where th- there is a atheist uh, movement on uh, specifically on the left that mask themselves in the Jewish religion when they're not adherent. You know, they're not observant, but they you, you can't say I who, who is the 
um, who's the pollster that um, the minority uh, whip is, um, is supposed to be rooming with in uh, Washington, D.C.? I'm not sure. Who, who's the big... Well, he gave... I, heard, I listened... I, I, I believe it was him where he said that, you know, he has taken um, polling on Jewish voters. And then he said that abortion is more important to them than the state of Israel. And that's crazy. Just like that's crazy. So that's crazy. And I I think a lot of left wing policies come out of, um, you know, and they come out of uh, what people would refer to like um, that. that, That's why I hate the fact that people paint Jewish people with such, you know, they bump everybody into it where you'll have somebody like uh, Rabbi Shapiro on who is clearly not a Zionist. He's very observant. He holds to the Torah. But there is a there is an atheistic, uh, atheist communist movement in, that basically tries to shield themselves with, um, oh, I'm Jewish, so you can't criticize me, when th- that is, like, it, the, religi- the religious aspect should have nothing to do with their political views, but they use that anti-Semitism as, you can't criticize me because that's anti-Semitic. Yeah, there's truth to that, man. I've seen a and lot also, of that. I mean, it, w- it would be like, to me, if you equated being Italian with being Catholic. They're two separate things. The religion right. is different. Most of the people they call Jewish are just ethnic Russians or Ukrainians yep. or Americans. Yep. Does that make sense, Carmine? Yeah. Absolutely. A lot of them are religious, as Owl said. And I just, when I hear. Yeah, go ahead, and I'll call her. No, I, I just find it so hypocritical that you can, and I'm not for censoring rap music, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard anti-white stuff in rap, and I'm not for censoring them. And I like rap music. I shared a just. It, I shared a whole video. I shared a whole video this weekend about they were like, "What are white people superior at?" And it was, it was a bunch of black people talking, and, and it, they just said the most horrible, vile things about white people. And I was like, I, and Twitter doesn't flag. Them. You, but again, like that—that's that's ignorant people. You can find white people that that will say the same thing about other of, of, about black people or other people's races. That's just ignorant thinking. I just find the hypocrisy that Nori would uh, come out and um, condemn Kanye Kanye's statements, and I'm not defending his statements, but he's got a right to make them. But Nori said that Christians can die on a cross like their weak religion, and that's fine. Well, you know. I'll bring up Martin Luther King Jr. for a second. Martin Luther King Jr. had it right when he was talking about colorblindness. He was not saying that black people are superior or white people are inferior or vice versa. He was saying, stop that. Stop judging people by the color of their skin. Judge them by who they are, the content of their character. Now, Carmine, let me ask you something, because I didn't know it till this weekend when I found out about it through that book, Tragedy and Hope 101, I was talking about earlier. Did you know that a jury in Memphis, in a trial about a wrongful death suit brought by Martin Luther King Jr.'s family, did you know that jury in Memphis found that conspiracy killed Martin Luther King? A jury actually found that. So it was That's, printed. When? So also, 100% factually, 
it was printed in the New York Times. Now, where would you think a jury finding a conspiracy in the death of Martin Luther King would make it in the paper? Front page, right? I would say something about the front, somewhere on the front page, big headline. It was on A23, the 23rd. That's called burying the story, right? And you can find the New York Times story. You'll see that it's on eight, page A23. And so it makes me want to look into the death of Martin Luther King more. Hey, Lee, Lee, you want to hear something crazy? So, yes, always. Yeah, so. You know, the um, great, he was a great comedian before he started losing his mind before he died, Dick Gregory. And I'd met him in person several times. Well, I had, I like him. Yeah, he he was the man before he started losing it. He used to be so sharp and then he just started getting agitated. And unfortunately, he died. Um, But I think that was his old age. But Dick Gregory did a, he was putting on a presentation about the assassination of Martin Luther King. And I forget who the one of the reverends that was there with him, but the reverend said, and we heard a shot, and we knew it was only going to be one shot, so nobody else hit the deck. And it was like one of those uh, audience slips, and Dick Gregory pointed that out. You you can find the video. I forget who the um, the, the person that was with him, but they knew it was going to be one shot. And, and Dick Gregory said, um, basically, sometimes the devil... Uh, uh, speaks too freely or something like that, words to that effect. But that, that was what really brought my interest into it. And yes, they did find that there was a conspiracy. And Martin Luther King Jr.'s family doesn't believe that the shooter is the one that, um, that, that went to jail for it, doesn't believe he was the one that fired the shot. His family doesn't believe it. And that's a big deal. So, Al Killer, I'm going to play a clip. Let me have your say on through the clip. And, and Tarif, Hold on, we'll get to you after this clip and after we finish up with Al Killer. So uh, let's go to the clip where Obama is sick of the woke stuff. And you know when Obama's sick of the woke stuff, it's sickening. So let's play that clip. Hit it. Times where I'd get, you know, uh, you know, sound like I was given a bunch of policy gobbledygook. And that's not how people think about these issues. They, they think about them in terms of, you know, the life I'm leading day to day. How, how, how does politics even, how is it even relevant to, uh, you know, the things that I, I care most deeply about? My family, my kids, you know, work that gives me satisfaction, uh, you know, having fun. You know, not not being a buzzkill, right? Uh, you <laughs> that's know, a so, lesson for the Democratic. Yeah, yeah and, and sometimes Democrats are right. It's it's like, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, people just want to not feel as if uh, they are walking on eggshells. Barack's right, but for the wrong reasons. He knows woke losers will get walloped in November, and he's putting some distance between himself and the buzzkills so he can say, see, told you so. Should have listened to Barry. So I don't know Barack Obama's motivations, and neither is the person talking there. They are not psychic. So without judging his motivations, I think his motivations are actually, he thinks that because it's obvious. There's a backlash against the woke stuff, against the Democrats. And as a Democrat, I think 
Obama does want not, not want Democrats to face the wrath. What do you think of what Obama said, Carmine? I thought it was very realistic. I would agree. Owl killer? What say you? He knows what's coming in November, and I don't, yep. he, he knows definitely what's coming in November. And at the end of the day, like, I think when you see how far how far the country has come, like how far bad it's gotten with the political correctness, I mean, I don't think he would have been able to, because he was, I mean, if you watch the, those, uh, the debates with McCain and the debates with Romney, like, I, I don't even think the campaigns that they waged against each other uh, would have been able to go on, you know, in, in this type of environment. But what I really think he sees is that the the Democrats have boxed themselves in where their candidates can't even debate because they can't defend these insane positions. And, I mean, like, we, we've gone from Obama, Joe Biden, and uh, Hillary Clinton all saying that you needed a border wall Two people saying that, you know, no borders, no nation, no nations at deportation. Like, that's where it's gotten. And it's it's so it's just he he can't recognize the country that, you know, he was leading um, eight years ago. That's really what I I think what he's what I think he sees. And he's trying to put I I think what he's doing is setting the stage for some type of moderate Democrat in twenty twenty four. I don't know who who it's going to be, but I think that's the type of stage that he's trying to set. Maybe. Too. Well, yeah, I think so, too. And I think Obama was a, a savvier politician than Joe Biden and the current crop of Democrats. There are enough politicians who don't even disguise that they don't care about working people. So, Owl Killer, great call as usual. I got to move on for time reasons, but fantastic call. Now. 202-521-1320. Tarif, one of our family of callers here on the backstory. Thanks for holding. What's on your mind, Tarif? Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free zone and signs. I have a comment about um, over the weekend, which I've been discussing about the, the false flag that I think that's going to happen, dealing with the uh, dirty bomb or mini nuke, or even a conventional war between Poland and Russia and the in a Belarus or United States and Russia dealing with the 101st Airborne troops that's in Europe now. They haven't really been... No, no. Tarif, let me interrupt you for one second. When you're saying a false flag, are you saying you expect a real dirty bomb attack and they're going to blame it on Russia? Is that what you're saying? Well, in my opinion, by reading the uh, uh, telegram, the, um, the Western, the West, the globalists and the West is so paranoid right now about losing power that they might start, they might use a dirty bomb before the November the 8th elections in November the 15th when they have the G20 elections to blame Russia so they get so they can get sympathy back from the global south, right? They can uh, further try to isolate Russia. I think they're so desperate that they're going to allow Zelensky and his little neo-Nazis to do it. That's my opinion. And if they do do it, I mean, the, the radiation from the dirty bomb will spread all over Eastern Europe, going into um, Germany, into Scandinavia. That's all went down. Well, well, let me say this. I don't think so much the Western powers are going to allow it so much. I think they're telling Ukraine, don't do it. 
But if Ukraine does it, they won't do anything. What did they do? We know it was Ukraine launching missiles against the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. The U.S. admits that, but they don't do anything, and they don't seem to care. So you see what I'm saying, Sharif? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. It, it, uh, what Adams McCurris was saying is like him and uh, Adams uh, Christopher, it's like the U.S. would say one thing, but the media would cover for Ukraine. You know, it, it's like... Well, I, yeah, and I'll mention, I like Alexander McCurris. And I think he does a lot of great work, but he's the person I was referring to. He is saying without proof that he doesn't think that Ukraine will do that. They will launch a dirty bomb attack because it would be suicidal. And but he knows that they were launching missiles against a nuclear power plant. He knows that they did that. So I think Alexander McCorris is putting hope in front of realism. Does that make sense, Sharif? Um, that does make sense. That does make sense. But uh, I'm telling you, uh, Ukraine is very desperate because once they get blocked off by Odessa, Russian troops going to Odessa in the next, what, three months? That's it for them. They will have no more access to the sea, and that's going to free up Hungary and Serbia because um, they're going to have access, the Russians going to have access to the Danube River. Uh, yes, and agreed. Yeah. Ukraine is desperate, but they're also vicious bastards and killers and liars. The Zelensky regime has proven time and time again they're vicious murderers who have no morals at all. They'll launch, they'll do anything and blame it on Russia. Every evil thing that they do they just blame on Russia and the U.S. media and the U.S. government lets them do it. So let me point out that they're desperate, but they're also vicious, sadistic and dishonest. Do you disagree, Grief? Yes, they're also vicious and dishonest. Um, yes. Oh, also, I need to say this, um, Lee. Somebody, the Republicans, I know Trump came out two weeks ago and he spoke about Ukraine. Trump needs to come out with other people like uh, Teller Green, Major Teller Green, and some other people need to come out and say, no war at war. We, we, need, we don't need to go to war with Russia at all. They need to say that. They, made it, they, made, they need to make this clear because the um, powers that be that's controlling the DNC, sadly, is pushing for uh, something to happen so the DNC can win in November the 8th. So, Carmike, do you agree that the Democrats have become the party of war in this country? Carmine, you you muted yourself again. Carmine, do you agree that the Democrats are the party of war in America? Carmine is still muted. What do you think, Tarif? Yes, they tie themselves to the um, industrial war complex system. They tie themselves to the um, Clintons, the Cheneys, and the Bushes. They are part of a war right now, and I'm sad that they 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 that they like that right now, but they're not like they used to be. So, well, no, you're right to point out the Bushes and Cheney. You notice Liz Cheney, for instance, got no bump from having Dick Cheney as a father. Carmine, 
What do you think about the way they've kind of switched back in the 80s and early 90s? The Republicans were the party of neocons. Bush and Cheney have no power in this current Republican Party. What say you, Carmine Sabia? Do we lose Carmine? Okay, so we won't try to wake him up because we have no way of doing it. But Tarif, let me mention to you one idea I had over the weekend. I was thinking about the Assange thing. So I talked to Taylor Hudak, the great journalist and Assange activist about this. I have a new idea for, to support Julian Assange. And so I'll, I'll, I'll mention it right now, but we're putting together the or, organization on this. And Brave from Atlanta, you might want to listen up. The idea is an event for Julian Assange called Art for Assange. And what it's going to be is a way for anybody who wants to, to contribute some art, a drawing, a painting, a poem, a song about Julian Assange. We're going to pick a day sometime in the future, probably end of November, early December. And everyone who wants to post a piece of art about Julian Assange, whether, again, it's a poem, a sculpture, a drawing, a painting, whatever. And this event will allow two things. One, it will have people create hundreds of pieces of art about Assange and distribute them all over the Internet. And also, we want to encourage people to buy the art. We want to encourage you, if you're not an artist, you can look at the art, and if you find a nice picture of Assange you want on your wall, buy it. Support independent artists. So that's the idea of art for Assange. What do you think about that, Tarif? Yeah, that um, that sounds great to raise some more money for his legal team to get the ball rolling. We need to run commercials over here for Julian Assange, you know? Right. Especially like in Virginia area where they're going to have the jury that's going to set up and be against them. New York, L.A., places where you got large media media where celebrities and famous people can see it. Because you had an actor came out over the weekend, right? Was it John Makovic? What's his name? They came out and supported Julian Assange. Well, we need some more people like that. Commercials need to be ran in the United States or radio um, ads dealing with general science um, trying to get them free, you know. And I'll tell you, my Art for Assange idea, my fantasy, my dream, is that we can get Roger Waters to release a version of Wish You Were Here, his great song from the Wish You Were Here album by Pink Floyd, to release a version. He's performed it acoustically, and I'd like to see him put it out as a single that day. Drop it, as the kids say. But uh, that's my our first Sanjay idea. And we're actively talking to Taylor Hudak about that idea. And so we're hoping to get that going. But thanks for the call, Tarif. Great call as usual. Now, let's play the clip about Bannon next, Command Central. We have another clip to play for you. My boss, Steve Bannon of course, is facing four months of jail time. And here's Steve talking about it. Hit it. 
Hang on. By the way, I want to say one thing. I, I respect uh, the judge. The sentence he came down with today is his decision. I fully respect. I've been totally respectful of this entire process uh, on the legal side. I also want to make one other statement before I talk about a broader topic. More than any person in the Trump administration, I testified before the Mueller Commission for more hours. I testified in front of uh, Chair Schiff in the House Intelligence Committee more than any other person in the Trump administration. I, I testified in front of the Senate Intelligence, I think, more than any, all about the issues related uh, to, uh, to Russia Gate, to all of that. Okay? The same process every time. I had lawyers that were engaged. They worked through the issues of privilege. And at that time, I went and testified. And, I, and, and this thing about uh, I'm above the law is an absolute and total lie. Now, more importantly, more importantly, the judge, today was my judgment day by the judge. And he stated and for the appeal. And we'll have a very vigorous appeals process. I've got a great legal team. And there'll be multiple areas of appeal. But, as that sign says right there, can we have the vote sign? November 8th, on November 8th, on November 8th, there's going to have judgment on the illegitimate Biden regime and quite frankly, and quite frankly, the Nancy Pelosi and the entire committee. And we know which way that's going. Either they've already been turfed out like Liz Cheney, right, or have quit like Kinzinger and other the Democrats, or they're about to be beaten like Luria and others. Or they will lose their power and become a minority and Nancy Pelosi and, and uh, Tom's Chairman Johnson, all of it. This is a, this is a, this is democracy. This is democracy. The American people are way in measuring what went on with the Justice Department and how they comported themselves. They're weighing and measuring that right now, and they will vote on November 8th. They will vote. Hang on. They will vote. Hang on. They will. They will know. They will know. They, they, can I go ahead and finish? Can I? Thanks. They, on November 8th. On November 8th, the American people will raise judgment. And we will groom the Biden administration ends on the eighth evening of the eighth of November. And let me be let me some other thing is that the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, will end up being the first attorney general that's brought up on charges of impeachment and he will be removed from office. Thank you very much. Now listen to those bastards trying to shut Steve Bannon down. As soon as he talks about the vote, and by the way, I've seen this Steve Bannon. That's his statement outside the court, but also he was on Tucker Carlson. And when he talked there, he's very smart. Bannon is very smart to emphasize people need to get out and vote on the 8th. And let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about immigration with Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. We'll talk to him next on The Backstory. Backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM AM 1390. Joined now by the great 
friend of the show and fabulous expert on immigration, former judge, immigration judge, Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies. Hey, Andrew, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing finely, and thank you for having me today. So it's always great to have you. And there's a lot to talk about because, of course, the we're, we're about two weeks away from the big election, the midterm elections. And are you seeing what I'm seeing, that the immigration is the number one issue for Hispanics, Andrew? Have you seen that? Yeah, no, I've seen a, a huge surge in interest in immigration uh, amongst Hispanics. Uh, in fact, it's been kind of surprising because uh, you know, the Republican Party isn't going to capture the majority of Hispanic votes. And by the way, I hate all, you know, nationality dividers like that. But, you know, I understand uh, how this goes. So the polls measure it. And I've seen uh, movement, especially in South Texas, in Florida, uh, toward a Republican uh, immigration package toward uh, immigration control by Republicans and toward Republican candidates. Again, uh, mostly but not exclusively in the South Texas um, districts that line the Rio Grande and also uh, in places in Florida where, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis is presenting a very different vision than the White House is. Yes. And, uh, you know, the Center for Immigration Studies is a nonpartisan group, correct? Yeah, we are nonpartisan, nonprofit. So if anyone's got a couple extra bucks, they can donate them right along, take them off of their taxes. But yes, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, we have Republicans, we have Democrats, we even have uh, recent uh, citizens uh, on the staff at the Center for Immigration Studies. So we are probably about as diverse a group as you're going to find. Now, that being said, in predicting what's going to happen in the election, does anything is there any silver lining for Democrats, or are the is the public concerned about immigration in a way that does not benefit the Democratic Party at all? Well, you know, it's importantly to take a look at a recent Harvard Harris poll. This thing was huge; more than two thousand individuals were polled. All of them were registered voters. And they were asked, uh, you know, what their top issues were, and the economy uh, and inflation were one and two. Number three, pretty close, was immigration. This was a huge issue for a massive uh, survey of voters done by Harvard Harris, not exactly a right-leaning organization. But the most uh, impressive part of that poll was the fact that. Most, uh, in fact, a large majority of respondents to that poll would prefer to have Republicans in Congress by a 46 to 35 margin controlling immigration. And in fact, they said that immigration of you know all the issues that were discussed, 20 different issues, was the uh, issue that Republicans were most concerned about. Again, inflation and the economy were other things on which uh, Republicans did really well in that poll. But uh, immigration came out the top. Conversely, uh, January 6th was viewed as the issue that Democratic um, Party leaders are most concerned about. And you have to look way down the list before you ever find immigration at 11% on that list. Now, Andrew, uh, one of our listeners in the rubble chat room 
had a question for you. And I'm I'm going to add to that question. But his question was, Mark in the Rumble chat room asked, how many immigrants are in the U.S.? So what's the current, I assume you mean illegal immigrants. How much, what's what's that number now? Yeah, the number that we've been using for years is 11.3 million, which reflects a certain amount of outflow and inflow. The center, uh, in fact, it's, it's funny that you're asking that question because the center right now is attempting to determine how many migrants are illegally present in the United States. But, you know, here's the biggest problem with computing that. I can tell you how many people have been apprehended and I can give you a rough idea and released. And I can give you a rough idea of how many gotaways that's people people who evaded apprehension there were. But a significant proportion, somewhere around 40% of all of the aliens unlawfully present in the United States actually entered legally on non-immigrant visas. They came as students or they came as tourists or, you know, some other sort of non-immigrant status and never left. Huge, you know, tens of thousands of, you know, people who go through the process at the embassy abroad, at the consulate abroad, get their visa, come over here and end up staying. And, I, you know, I tell you, that's a heartbreak because there are many people who, you know, simply want to come and visit family in the United States. They simply want to go to Disney World or see the Golden Gate Bridge. They can't get in because so many of their countrymen are violating our laws by coming in and staying. Now, let me suggest that it's actually worse than that, Andrew. So here's what I'm saying. I think that I, I, I don't know if you know the numbers, but I think a lot of people are seeing at the border are not there illegally. They're there using our laws against the way they were not using a loophole in the law. In other words, they show up at the border and they claim they're immigrants escaping oppression abroad and they are not illegal therefore they're let into the country under the law that they're going to have to face a, a hearing about that eventually do you see what i'm saying yeah, I, no, I, think I see exactly what you're saying in fact uh during a very interesting interview uh by cnn with uh, former President Bill Clinton, the interviewer, brought up the fact that, you know, this is CNN now, Lee, brought up the fact that it appeared uh, that a lot of those people were violating the spirit that they were abusing our asylum uh, system. And, you know, President Clinton responded yes to that. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the person in the rumble room, uh, you know, pretty much agrees with former President Bill Clinton on this issue. But, there is one caveat that I will add, and I wrote you know, more than 2,000 words on this because this comes up a lot. Aliens who have entered the United States illegally are here illegally. It doesn't matter if they're applying for asylum. It doesn't matter you know, that they got family in Des Moines or Dubuque or Des Moines. Um, you know, they are here illegally, uh, and their presence in the United States is in violation of law. In fact, the only reason that they can apply for asylum is because they are here illegally uh, and they're put into removal proceedings. And right now we have more than 1.9 million uh, pending cases before 587 immigration judges, just to give you an idea how bad that system is. So, yeah, but, you know, there's no doubt about it. And in fact, there is a process that Congress gave DHS 
back in 1996, actually as the former INS back in 1996, to screen those individuals to determine whether they do have valid claims before they're allowed, you know, even into the process. The Biden administration, however, has used that expedited removal authority only about 10% of the time. Part of the reason, Lee, that we have so many people entering the United States illegally is because the Biden administration doesn't want to use the key authorities Congress has given it to actually bring control of the border, and that is expedited removal and detention. Now, alternatively, the Biden administration could do what the Trump administration did. The Immigration Nationality Act allows DHS to send aliens who enter the United States illegally back across the border. That's the essence of remain in Mexico, which is formally called the Migrant Protection Protocols. The Biden administration fought in court. It has been fighting in court, still fighting, ever since April 2021, not to use that tool that Congress has given it not to bring control to the border. Now, we've heard a lot of talk about the Republican governors who sent you know, I won't say illegal immigrants, but I will round it off. Many, many immigrants to cities like New York and Washington, D.C. But the Biden administration is also flooding the cities with immigrants, right? You wrote about this on the CIS website recently. What's the Biden administration up to flooding cities? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Lee, because there is a a program that was uh, passed under the Reagan administration that would provide food and shelter for uh, the homeless in the United States, Uh, homeless vets, the elderly, uh, the physically infirm, the mentally infirm. Uh, But the Biden administration, at the behest of of a Democratic Congress, has been using that program to the tune of $150 million to provide shelter, food and transportation to illegal migrants in the United States. We don't even know how huge a number that is because there's so little transparency from the Biden administration. But GAO was called upon, the Government Accountability Office was called upon to look at this issue, to look at what happens to migrants after they're released. And the numbers were you know, truly jaw-dropping of the number of people who have been sent to New York, who have been sent to uh, Washington, D.C., to the D.C. suburbs in Maryland and Virginia, who have been sent to Illinois. Those are all the same places that these Republican governors, they're all Democrat-controlled, that these Republican governors are sending people to. And yet, you know, Greg Abbott and Doug Ducey, respectively, the governors of Texas and Arizona, are the ones who are being blamed. In reality, the Biden administration is the one who is doing this. In fact, in a quote that I had in the Washington Times the other day, I said, it's doing it in spades. It's doing it, you know, exponentially, uh, at an exponentially greater rate than Texas or Arizona, and, you know, certainly greater than Ron DeSantis is sending 50 people to Martha's Vineyard. So, yeah, that's really the issue. Now, I think the problem is that the Democratic mayors of, you know, Washington, D.C., New York and Chicago can't blame the Biden administration for its failed border policies. So they focus their attention on Abbott and Ducey and to a lesser degree on DeSantis. But, you know, by doing that, they actually keep the narrative that Abbott, Ducey and DeSantis have started going. It's the worst thing that they could be doing, which is why we've seen a huge surge 
you know, in polling, in concerns, including amongst Hispanic Americans when it comes to immigration. So, you know, November, uh, the morning of November 9th, if it, you know, uh, you know, shows that we have a brand new Republican Congress, House and Senate, a lot of that is going to be thanks to, you know, Abbott and Ducey, two Republican governors. But it's going to have a whole lot to do with Eric Adams of New York, Muriel Bowser of Washington, D.C., and Lori Lightfoot of Chicago, three Democratic mayors. They apparently didn't get the talking points that they're not supposed to complain about this surge of, uh, you know, poor and homeless migrants in their city. So, you know, that really is what it comes down to. And it's curious, you know, after the Washington Times reported on this, after GAO released this report, there's been virtually nothing from the vast majority of the national media about the fact that the Biden administration has been doing this. You know, they're putting people on buses, they're putting people on planes, they're releasing them away from the border so that they can hide the scope of the disaster. Now, another thing we may see on November 9th is Republican governor in Arizona. Carrie Lake is likely to win in Arizona. What do you think of Carrie Lake on immigration, by the way? So yeah, I mean, she's very good on immigration. She wants to continue the same policies that uh, the Ducey administration uh, has implemented. In fact, she wants to ramp them up. Uh, and it's important to note that they're, again, one of those things that just hasn't been noticed by the national media. There's about 3,000 feet of border in Yuma, Arizona, that's called the Yuma Gap. Part of that is along the Colorado River, which runs on the western, southwestern part of the state. And part of it uh, is on uh, some Indian tribal territory where DHS was in the process of, you know, building the fence, completing the fence uh, on the day that Joe Biden took office. And then Biden put a halt on any additional border construction. So. Uh, Governor Ducey in Arizona took a look at the Yuma Gap, took a look at the tens of thousands of migrants who have poured through the gap and decided that he was going to dump um, tra- uh, containers, you know, the sort of containers that we see on the back of 18 wheelers into the gap to seal the gap. He got a letter a couple of weeks ago from the Bureau of Reclamation at the Department of Interior telling him that he was trespassing on federal property by plugging the gap. And, you know, Ducey's a smart guy, surrounded by smart people. Uh, He responded and said, look, you know, we, yes, you know, if you trespass without a reason on federal land, that's in violation of the law. But we have a reason, and his reason was Arizona is facing an invasion. Now, I've long been loathe to call what's going on at the southwest border an invasion, but under Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution, a state has the ability to uh, defend itself against an invasion. So, you know, this isn't a situation where Texas state troopers are going to be sending people back across the border. This is a bunch of containers that are sitting in what is admittedly a huge problem at the southwest border. If the federal government, if the Department of the Interior, the Department of Justice decides they want to make an issue of it, I trust that, you know, uh, Governor Ducey and if she's elected, Governor Lake are going to say bring it on because that really will bring attention to this. This happened, by the way, Lee, at the worst possible time for Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is the incumbent uh, Democratic senator 
from Arizona. He's the junior senator. He was elected in a special election uh, back in 2020. He's running for re-election against Blake Masters, another guy who's you know, pretty good on immigration by my lights. Now, Kelly says all the right things when you ask him. He says that the Biden administration has botched what's going on at the border. But when you look at what he's actually done, he really hasn't done that much. So, you know, this fight between the state of Arizona and the federal government over a bunch of containers at the southwest border again has come at the worst possible time as early voting is going on in Arizona. And Care Lake is getting a lot more publicity, but you're right. Blake Masters, what I've seen is he's likely to win at this point. At this point, it's considered a toss-up leaning Masters. And so is that what you're saying, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, I've read this in a number of articles and talked to a lot of people in Arizona. As you know, Lee, I go down there all the time. And I, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, down along the border. And what they're telling me is that uh, Lake is, you know, overperforming uh, where they, ex- you know, what they expected her to do. She's a pretty straightforward uh, woman. You know, she's a former TV host. Uh, you know, she uh, knows what she's saying. She knows how to present herself. And she really doesn't take any guff. And in that, you know, she is of a kind, uh, you know, along with Greg Abbott. Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Uh, And, you know, immigration is a huge issue in southern Arizona. People, you know, just don't really seem in the rest of the country to know what's going on down there. But Yuma in particular is a sore spot. That's where most of those, you know, long distance migrants, people who aren't from Central America, who aren't from Mexico, enter. And it's particularly egregious down there because um, Senator Lankford of Oklahoma was down there and a Border Patrol agent uh, told her, you know, told him that one of the migrants who was coming in was wearing a haute couture dress from a very fancy French um, uh, clothier. And, you know, that's sort of indicative of what's going on down there. You know, people who aren't really uh, you know, they're not really asylees. They're not really asylum seekers. They're not even economic migrants. These are people who are simply looking for more advantages in the United States, and they figure that coming through the Yuma Gap is the way to get them. Now, and it, I think it's important that we have two Republican that are sane on immigration because, of course, Republicans who were senators in Arizona include John McCain, one of the Gang of Eight, and Jeff Flake. How bad were on immigration were McCain and Flake? Well, I would say that uh, Jeff Flake was definitely out of the mainstream on immigration. Um, you know, it, it, there are a lot of good things to say about Jeff Flake, but you know, his position as related to immigration wasn't one of those things, which is likely the reason why he didn't run for re-election again. John McCain offers a slightly different perspective, and you know, I, I worked with Mr. with uh, Senator McCain. Uh, I knew the man, uh, and he was truly an American hero. He's a man who was grievously tortured when he was in uh, custody uh, in Vietnam as a prisoner of war. And he was a guy who told it like it was. 
But, you know, he looked at the landscape and when he needed to be tough on immigration, he was tough on immigration. But when, you know, he saw the winds going the other way, he wasn't as tough on immigration. He wasn't, you know, a border hawk, except to the degree that, you know, prevailing uh, times called for him to be one. So, but yeah, I mean, that was a very different Republican Party than the one that we have today. You know, that was a Republican Party of John Boehner and Paul Ryan, who, you know, famously uh, tanked uh, a Republican-sponsored bill that would have brought uh, control to the southwest border. These Republicans today, and, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. You know, they say all the right things. We'll see whether they do all the right things if they're given the levers of power. But Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Republican members, uh, the Republican conference in the House and the Senate, those are people who understand that the United States is in a crisis. They're in a crisis as it relates to immigration. And this is the thing, Lee. You know, you and I have talked about this before. I believe in immigration. I believe in legal immigration to the United States. I cherish it. I venerate it. Um, What they're doing, what the Democrats, what President Biden is doing right now is going to cut the heart out of the American public as it relates to immigration. They're going to, you know, lose their appetite to allow more newcomers to come to the United States. One thing that I can tell you is that we're, you know, very quickly getting to the point where we have as large a percentage of foreign born in the United States as we had, you know, back before 1924 when the immigration laws changed. Now, if the American people want that, it's good. It's, you know, as it should be. But we have laws to limit immigration to the United States for a reason. The executive branch should be doing what Congress told it to do, not what it wants to do. And right now we have a White House, we have an Oval Office, we have staffers who believe truly in their hearts that the immigration laws of the United States are unfair. You know, I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, as I've told you before. And, you know, I am blessed to, you know, be a Marylander, to be an American, you know, to carry that passport with the big eagle on it. Because, you know, it is probably my, you know, my citizenship is the greatest gift that I've ever been given. But many people around uh, President Biden think it's unfair that I should get the benefit of getting to live and work in the United States when, you know, another person, Andres Arturo, born in San Pedro Sula, doesn't have that chance. And that's really what's driving a lot of this is they just don't think the laws are fair. If the laws aren't fair, change the laws. But that doesn't give you a right to violate the laws or ignore them. Now, Andrew, we, we've played a clip from my old boss, Steve Bannon, before, and he was out and he was talking about impeachment for Merrick Garland. Now, I want your opinion. Do you think, because I hear this all the time, people say he can be impeached for his position on immigration because it's taking down America's sovereignty. Legally, could that be a basis, in fact, for impeaching Merrick Garland? Does that make sense? I think that there's going to be a lot of impetus, uh, you know, in Congress, if the Republicans take control of the House, to impeach not only Merrick Garland, but also Alejandro Mayorkas, who is the secretary of DHS. Now, the Constitution is pretty strict as it relates to impeachment. It's only for high crimes and misdemeanors. And But, you know, during the Trump administration, we saw the sitting president of the United States impeached twice. 
I think that the American people, you know, want to get away from this impeachment fever. They have the ability to vote these people out. And, you know, I question whether Merrick Garland's going to want to stick around for, uh, you know, a hearing a week at which very angry Republicans who have not had the ability to question him on a lot of these policies or question Mr. Mayorkas are going to stick around either. You know, this may be a time that, uh, you know, Judge Garland decides that he wants to spend more time with his family, uh, that, you know, Secretary Mayorkas wants to go back into private practice and make some money for the, you know, future generations. But yeah, you know, when, he, when, when you talk about impeachment, the standard is high. You're going to need uh, a majority, a supermajority of votes in the Senate to convict. Whether it's worth, you know, all of the uh, the turmoil that it will, you know, push the American people into to go through an impeachment, you know, uh, you know, I don't know. And the fact is that Democrats are not going to find high crimes and misdemeanors were committed by either uh, Garland or Mayorkas. I just don't think they're going to stick around. So, for instance, if there was a payoff, I'm, I'm just saying, in theory, if there is a payoff to Merrick Garland, that's a crime. But otherwise, it's a policy disagreement. And you don't see a – does that make sense? Yeah, no. It doesn't – I agree with you. Yeah, and again, you know, many people who have looked at this, you have looked at, you know, uh, impeachment. We've had to look at it way too much in the last 20 years. You know, really go to the fact that there is a political component uh, to impeachment. There's a constitutional component. It really is better to let, in my opinion— to allow the political system to work it out and, you know, ask yourself how much appetite Merrick Garland's going to have for everything that he's going to face from a Republican Senate. He's or a Republican House or Senate. You know, he's going to have to respond to inquiries, not just about him, but about all of his staff, all of his expenses, all of his travel, everything that he's done. And then Congress holds the power of the purse. You know, traffic uh, parking spots in Washington, D.C. aren't free, nor nor is staff. And so there are any number of things that the opposing party can do to make your life difficult. We're out of time, but a fantastic appearance as usual. And people can find your articles at CIS.org, Center for Immigration Studies.org, CIS. Org. Thanks so much, Andrew Arthur and Ian Schilling. A great show. And Carmine on a Carmine Monday. And we'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory. Story.